Tis the goddamn season. In honor of Violet Night, what's your favorite movie with a Santa in it? I'm Katie Rich, and I don't remember a whole lot about the movie Prancer, but the genre of child takes care of animal was very big for me in the early 90s, and Wikipedia tells me there is a Santa in it, so I'm going to pick Prancer. <laughs> I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Arthur Christmas, the Arvin CG movie that, yeah, it gets no play. No one talks about this movie during the holidays, and uh, probably because it's not easily streamed, but that is a good movie. Underrated CG Ar- Ardman joint. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I learned on this week's trial by content not to be highfalutin with my movie opinion. So, Elf, because seeing Elf early in my time in New York was a great and memorable time. Good New Sits York on movie. a throne of lines. Uh, Arthur Christmas is on HBO Max, the internet tells me. Oh, oh. great. Watch Everybody it. Watch it. I'm and Elf, whatever. David Ehrlich, and I, in the words of Lucille Bluth, don't understand the question, and I won't respond to it. Wow. Oh, the wow. war on Christmas begins. Rankin and Bass, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer for you, David. That's your pick. Mm. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 417, Pandemic 147. It is the week of Wednesday, November 30th. That's the day the 1979 Pink Floyd's The Wall was released. And the I don't album, know if. Not the movie. I don't know if The Wizard of Oz was available for home viewing at that point. I wonder how long it took. To that's a different Pink Floyd movies. album. Really? No. That's Dark Side, oh, Dark of, the Side Moon. of the Moon. You're right. The Wall is. Teachers! Leave those kids alone. I'm, I, bow, I really, bow, da, 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 da. my Pink Floyd knowledge is like that song, the fact that you listen to Dark Side of the Moon with Wizard of Oz and that like poster that everyone had in college with like all the women's backs with like Pink Floyd painted on the back. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's about it. Should I learn more about Pink Floyd? I mean, Have you seen the I wall? don't know how much the you do never seen the drugs wall. anymore, but uh, <laughs> the wall, the movie and the wall, the album is much better on drugs. Uh, yeah, that might be why I don't know anything about it. Uh, we're back for a real episode after uh, a Joanna special last week, which I'm assuming everybody enjoyed because everyone's excited when Joanna's back. David and Patches, come resume your throne. I also enjoyed <laughs> listening to uh, the episode with Joanna much more than I would ever enjoy listening to myself. And I did one thing that jumped out at me to respond to was the idea that, um, uh, Fleischman is in trouble is or like wants to be a movie rather than a television show. And I think that Joanna's seen more of it than I have because I've only seen the three episodes that have been released to the plebeians like me. But uh, I think that I'm not sure I feel about that because I tend to find that I love TV. I want TV to be TV when it's incredible, like Mad Men. But when TV is merely very good, most of the time, I'm like, this should have been a movie. And then when TV's trash, like my beloved Blow Deck, I'm like, this is what TV was invented for. And this is Fleischman falls into that middle ground. And so every part of me should should want, judging by history, for it to be a movie. Should think this good thing uh, deserves to be in my preferred medium. And I can see a way for the story to make sense like that. But I've enjoyed the episodic approach they've taken so far in, in sort of juggling perspectives and the different shifting uh, you know, mindsets that Fleischman has been in and the third episode goes back in time to when he and Claire Danes first met. I don't know. We'll see how I feel about that as the series goes on. That was my one bone to pick with uh, 
with your conversation. Well, this in a more relevant review was tract, written by David Ehrlich. Yeah, in a more relevant tract, I saved a review for you, David. So even though Marvel Snap did have a notable update oh. today, we don't mm. we don't have to talk about it. Uh, yeah, the notable update that Marvel Snap has is that I'm still not playing it. No interest. Uh. Um. But but they all get last in the fit were a tournament. Uh, I am. I mean, I can say this because it's a held over review and we don't have any new ones that I am getting dangerously close to unlocking a second galactic legend. I'm not going to say who it is yet. I don't uh, don't want uh, to. But uh, stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned out there. Um, all right. So I should read this review, which I remember Dave saying on last week's episode. He was waiting for me to read. I'm assuming it is. Hey, a team by Joko417. Does love going back in time? I'm a relatively new listener to the podcast, very much enjoying hearing all your takes and insight on the cinematic culture and industry of the day. As I don't always know what phone video game y'all are spouting about each week, I thought I would try nope. to garner an extra lengthy and productive response from you. So I'm posing a question as a new listener to the podcast, one that has literally hundreds of episodes going back through years of movie content. One of my greatest like pleasures that. is scrolling down the feed of episodes and finding one of my favorite movies being discussed. It's a great trip down memory lane, and it's interesting to hear about the film or that film being discussed when it was released, and it makes me reflect on how films have aged. So my question to each of you, what are some of your fave episodes, oh boy, as if we could remember a single one of them, or movies I should listen to? Could it be an insightful intellectual conversation, a hysterical fight, or just a fond memory you have of bonding with the group? Share the foundational Fighting in the War Room episodes with the newbie. Keep up the hot takes. Thanks, y'all. I mean, I think... When I think of foundational episodes, oh. it goes all the way back to the op kino days. I don't know if Joko417 is aware that we had a podcast that was exactly the same as this one. It was just under a different title because it was owned by a corrupt <laughs> website. Um, and, uh, you know, that we've, we have repeated many times on this podcast the story of us all huddled in my former, former, former apartment on 2nd Avenue in East Village in the middle of a heat wave with Dave, like, shirtless and everyone, you know, getting real quiet out there. And uh, we're all gathered around on my floor. Uh, all in the same place, if you can imagine. Uh, ranting at each other about X-Men First Class, a huge piece of shit. That, I think, was a formative moment a movie for the podcast. I, like, well, I would point them to uh, episode 175, Revisiting Previous Infamous Discussions, which was a quarter quell we did in 2017, where we uh, brought back Soul Surfer, the Oscars, uh, Netflix, and new television. I don't remember. That was, Dave, your topic, and I don't remember what the topic was. And um, a little movie called Foxcatcher. I feel like that might be a good place to start. I was going to say Soul, Soul Surfer really sticks Soul with Surfer me. and Foxcatcher. no one thinks about, has no cultural relevance, and sticks out because of this podcast. Thank God we watched lost Soul her Surfer. Arm. She it did. I think if you go to fightinginthewarroom.com and search the name of your favorite movie, hopefully it'll pop up because it does search the entire text of the post, which is a benefit because it was built at a weird time in tagging. You don't care about that, listener. What I want to recommend to you are some of the more meta ones. So I would search for Wedding Special. There are three. Mm -hmm. Those are all uh, very fun in terms of just getting to know us. And then I also like... Uh, we did uh, episode 324 and then episode 324.5. The first one is called A Podcast Recorded the Day Before the Election to Air After the Election. <laughs> and the other one is called A Podcast Recorded After the Election. <laughs> I don't I remember think, uh, that one at all. <laughs> I have no idea what we talked about. I remember having to delete all of the podcasts I had in my podcast app after the 2016 election. I felt like I couldn't listen to this anything. is a 2020 election. One. This is a 2020. Oh, this was 2020. Yeah. That's good. That's good. 
We've been doing this so, long enough to span multiple elections, to be clear. So I imagine the first one is cautious optimism with everyone being like, but it's just going to be Trump. Like, we don't, we're yeah. not lucky. And then the second one being like, oh my God, should we bring back review episodes? No. So that's what I guess. <laughs> but if, if wedding specials, for sure, those are the ones that even I listen to uh, frequently to go back. And I'm sure we have episodes have of, of rowdy discussions about movies we don't agree on, but none of them. Every Marvel movie. Mind. There are Star Wars specials that involve mm. all the released Star Wars movies. If those, if your franchise is your thing, otherwise I would, yeah, just search for the name because occasionally the uh, the smaller movies or things like us discuss discussing the original Staircase uh, are just things you have to search for text. Oh yeah, you should listen to our Knives Out episode in which we also talk about Watchmen and Frozen Two. Uh, that's uh, those three good ones. That's from late twenty nineteen. Frozen Two, woof. <laughs> a movie I've seen a hundred thousand times since that it's episode. Terrible, terrible. My daughter prefers it to Frozen. In well, fact, she has a like storybook version of Frozen. She's thing. thrown it away because she's like Frozen Two or Bust. I'm like, what's she loves wrong ice with sculptures? you? I haven't the... talked to her since. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Remember that amazing song from Frozen Two? Where is yeah. this podcast going? What do we do here? That if is a you good. Want. You know what? That is a good song from Frozen Two. Was that singer that Aurora? Is, she really, she really fucking brought it, man. Oh. If, if you want us to read your review on the show, you could go to the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there. We would like five stars. If not, you could email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. Or if you're in an in international space and you would like us uh, to read it, uh, you could also email us there. That's what how we do reviews. International Space Station. What should you do? Mm, please listen to this podcast. Do they have Email internet base. on the ISS? Do you know? I mean, well, I imagine. So. Yeah. Why wouldn't they? In the theory, they could right have. There. Yeah, they could have better internet connection than all of us. In theory, they might have solar flare. Yeah. Oh, when there's a solar flare issue, I think we'll all have solar flare <laughs> issues. Uh, let's let's get out with the show. I have to watch out for the Cloverfield monster popping off. Yeah, that's right. And eating. Oh, we them. definitely have. Oh, the quarter quill where we do the New York movies. That was a fun one. Oh yeah, all the quarter quills are good. We probably yeah, just they, should, should have said that. We but I imagine. Said those. I imagine they'll come around. You the cooling man, you send you up. Freezing cool and nights and nine twos. Oh, all right. <laughs> Guys, what's on the menu? Well, uh, Patches, funny you should ask, because if you care, you're a dick. Um, uh, this is about the menu is a movie about super upscale dining, and I think what rich people have done to food, amongst other things. Uh, I would classify it as a uh, horror comedy starring Anya Taylor Joy, uh, Katie. What what were you expecting when you went in to go to see the menu? Because I don't know about you, but every time I went to a theater in like it feels like the past four months, the menu's been a preview on everything. I mean, especially if you've been going to the Women King. If you've been going to a lot of the, a lot of draft houses, because I, have, I yes. think that they like have a corporate wide mandate to put that trailer on literally every to put movie. the menu on. Well, everything. Well, I like hope they could do a lot of custom food. I would hope there like there is one specific dish in the menu that I think would be very well tied in. Oh, uh, is it well, a spoiler to, to say what it I is. Don't don't, um, don't say no, what it is. I don't want to say what my, it is. My question on that note, as someone who hasn't seen the movie, 
is it is the food in the movie. And I know it's a lot of like uh, gastronomy and whatnot, but like, is the food in the movie appetizing? Did you leave hungry? On the Jiro Dreams of Sushi yeah. scorecard. It really the runs the gamut. Okay. Like mm-hmm. there is uh, like the, the point of the movie. And again, we don't want to get into spoilers too much. Is that like the way that you look at big fancy food and the way that people kind of obsessed over it and pay a fortune for it is, um, is stupid. And that there are other ways to think mm. about food. Cut, and, but that is not me. That does not mean that they are going to make the food look bad. Like a lot of the really fancy food looks really good, but then there are a lot of other ways to think about like what food is worth and Mm. what like your time and money is worth. And like specifically the labor that goes into making that food is worth. Um, And a lot of that comes from Ray Fiennes' character. Is it going to make me feel like a better person for eating like ramen and bagels with the (laughs) like, Two weeks old. I got out of the movie. I went and got like the cheapest possible cheeseburger and was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> I, so, I had maybe. just eaten at um a cheesecake factory before I went in and I regretted my choice. <laughs> so there's really, really a wide range there. Um, I think it fits well into Rafe Fines as a uh a service worker cinema with the Grand Budapest Hotel, oh. a different kind of character, <laughs> but uh you can see them kind of hand like shaking hands with each other. Anya Taylor Joy is really good in it. I've seen like Pretty much most of her stuff. I didn't watch all of the Queen's Gambit, um, but I feel like she's still like surprising and really compelling as a screen presence. As like the, <sighs> I'm gonna say it's like a final girl thing, and that that's not really a spoiler, but that's kind of the vibe of like her. She's like the outsider who's brought into this fancy restaurant, being like, "Wait, what's going on?" And, like trying to outsmart her way through the situation, because um, everyone else is kind of this like big, colorful character. Like Nicholas Holt is her boyfriend, who's like this huge like gastronomy snob, who's like, "Don't eat the oyster that way. You have to eat it that way." And John Langwazamo is this insecure actor. There's this group of finance bros. There's Judith Light and Reed Bernie is like these like rich old people. Who am I missing, Dave? They're, they're, they're uh, kind the of all types. Critics. Oh, the, the food, food critics. Oh, food critics. Oh my god, they're so but good. Yeah, no, food critics uh, part, are so good. Played by um, about this, uh, uh, shit. Uh, who plays the food critic? Um, Jan McTeer. Yes. Yes. I really wish that we were recording this episode from. New York sushi bar Yoshino, which was recently given four stars to the New York Times and cost $600 at the bare minimum a night at a 10-seat counter run by Chef Tadashi Yoshida. Uh, I've had the tab mm-hmm. open on my computer for about a month now since it was published by Pete Wells on November 15th, just aspirationally. <laughs> like, you were just talking about how you're a better person for eating shitty I know, I know. But I'm, you know, and and then the, you're like, inside but. me there are two wolves, you know? <laughs> and like, one of them, one of them truly lives on nothing but the five pound bag of candy I bought for $9 a month ago. And the other is obsessing about going to Yoshino in whatever alternate universe I can afford to have one meal there. Well, but it also is about like, food as art and expression like it kind of links up with the fablemans in interesting ways about like who you become when you pursue something that you're passionate about and like to what end would you do you see what i mean about that dave yeah i, I mean it, it 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 has a lot of really good biting class commentary uh and it is sort of like a tension built movie it's about the ebbs and flows of how tense you're feeling i think during this meal and as it uh, rolls out and you try to figure out uh, sort of what's happening and how everybody is related uh, to each other. But part of that journey definitely at the end is what happens when you dedicate your life either to food or to being the best or heaven forbid both, uh, because that seems like a very uh, destructive life path. I really liked that uh, John Languizamo's, uh actor is basically John Leguizamo, just in a movie that we haven't seen. 
really is. But they, they, they like don't a do more a lot successful. To... Like if John Leguizamo had had like an Adam Sandler style hit in the early 2000s. I mean, you haven't seen those Summer of Sam residuals. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah. So and then the 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 meal costs something like eighteen hundred dollars per head per night or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, and then everybody gets uh, sent out to this island where they make and uh, develop all of the food. Uh, that they're going to be serving and all of the kitchen staff lives in very spartan conditions on this island and it's all sort of serving ray finds his uh celebrity chef and his his various machinations uh but because of that machinations yes Mm -hmm. uh because of the specific um price point and how early you have to book um the meal is sort of catered to the people who are attending it so when anya taylor joy's character Margot shows up and is not the person that was on the guest list that's sort of what katie's referring to is like the final girl she's the impetus for maybe some threads going in uh different directions than everything else which seems very uh clearly planned out yeah as the as as the plot unfolds yeah, it doesn't have as much of an obvious Elon Musk type as Less Onion, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it definitely is about like what happens when you pursue your work to the point that that is who you are able to serve food to and whether or not that's worth it, um, which I think is, you know, in our, it's been a big season for class conscious satire and it very much fits within that. Um, yeah, it's, it's big fun. season for class content satire and movies about what it's like to make or watch movies. Make art, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I think this this one, yes, fun, I think, is the thing that I was not expecting it to be this fun, mm. uh, because the preview does sort of uh, give some stuff away, like, obviously, that things turn bad and violent, and at one point, the men are hunted, that's in the preview. Uh, oh, is but it like the a- men you, you know? Like man, uh, is the most it's actually man. a prequel to Alex Garland's Men. Oh wow! Yeah, oh, men. Oh. No, this is it's like the Monsters <laughs> University. It's like the Monsters <laughs> University of the men. But it 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 <laughs> is a lot more fun than what I expected to be sort of a straightforward uh, claustrophobic horror movie. Uh, despite yeah. b- basically being in one location, directed uh, by it a Game of Thrones like guy, right? and a Succession guy. Uh, also, he directed the uh, Succession episode Turnhaven, where they go um, to dinner at the fancy New York Times people's house, and uh, Matthew McFadden says, uh, "Spinach King of the of the raw leaves." What is he like? Like That's the most awkward dinner party of all time. Um, I'm going to look. Um, but it reminds yeah, anyway. me that he is not the only Game of Thrones director to have made a pretty good movie. Of course, the other movie I just had to Google the name of by typing Tom Hanks Finch? robot. Is that it? Tom Are Hanks you- robot into Google. And yes, Finch? I came up with Finch by Miguel yes, Sapachnik, which is a really delightful movie. That's good um, trivia. On Apple TV Plus. And you name, yeah, I'm like, can we go down the list of Game of Thrones? What is Alan Taylor? Can you name an Alan Taylor movie? Yeah, he made Hellboy. Or the Dark World. Yeah, you got that. That was easy. <laughs> um, uh, the two name writers, one. Uh, Seth Reese and Will Tracy, right? they're both uh, writers no, for like, Wait, he didn't do- they're both writers for Late Night. So like, one's movie. a Seth Meyers oh. writer and one is a... Can I review the movie? <laughs> yeah, what are you guys doing? We're completely talking over each other. We're having two conversations. This podcast is working on a different level. Right? I was having the relevant conversation. I assumed <laughs> you two would shut yeah, up. I was definitely talking I, about the relevant I'm conversation. I'm just shouting Hellboy into the void over Can and over. Can you have <laughs> side <laughs> conversations <laughs> on podcasts? No. <laughs> no you people, people hate it. No. This is yeah. good audio. This is what people come for. 
Uh, maybe Marshall I could mix for that part, Hellboy. you guys, and the, oh my god. Uh. <laughs> talk about Hellboy. <laughs> Neil Marshall did direct Game of Thrones, so you got hey, that hey, right. Hey, Patches, what'd you think about the menu? I didn't see the menu. I'm That's right, you didn't see the oh, fucking god. menu. Patches hasn't left his house for two weeks, and he's lost the ability That's to true. have a conversation with people. I'm losing my goddamn mind. <laughs> uh, Dave, uh, what would you like to tell us about the menu? Uh... Really liked it. I like the uh, David's uh, impetus that he would like to see it and would not be spoiled because I don't think there's that much to spoil, but I do think that you benefit from seeing how it uh, all rolls out uh, once yeah. everything gets kicked off. I think off. that's my biggest question. Are there like set pieces or is, is there are there reveals? Like what is the does it feel like knives out where it's kind of incrementally it's... building towards a one single reveal or is like what's the no, entertaining part of the movie i haven't really been able to grasp that from the trailers it's based by course and each course will be come with a title card uh that some of them are just descriptive and some of them are also funny uh so we're we're going through courses and when we start it's like you know basic starters that look really fancy and by the time we get to the end uh giving away the titles of any of the dishes I think would be spoilers because it becomes yeah. more in, it becomes more involved. Yeah. Um yeah, it's just kind of like it's a it's really a movie in which like you don't totally know where it's going to go from from course to course in a way and that element of uncertainty I think really works in its favor, which is a, a reason not to spoil. It. It's not as as like puzzle boxy as Knives Out for sure. Oh, man. Um, right. Yeah. But it has surprises nor is it as structurally weird as something like Barbarian, which I also didn't want to spoil. I guess that's what uh, I'm, I'm thinking more maybe like a Barbarian, where it's like every every 10 or 20 minutes we're going to get a new notch uh, to that we're watching a different movie, something we're going to get the... Yeah, the menu's not really like that either. Us. Interesting. No, this one, there's not a lot of carpet pulling, but there are unexpected developments even when you think you know the trajectory of where it's going. The I think also just because... Change. Yeah. The stakes change. Also, because they find the steaks play. cooked yeah, rare. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, well they, they put butter on them and then sometimes they put parsley <laughs> on them. Uh, I also want to be clear. You never uh, put on steaks. Tom Lomskans at Turnhaven says, uh, King of Edible leaves His Majesty the Spinach, which is you way better well. than what I said. Um, you went to a liberal arts college. Well, sure. The menu. Speaking of puzzle boxes, have any of you watched 1899 on Netflix? What are you pivoting the segment? No, yeah. no, 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 no. But I, I do want to once I have some free time. Uh, what uh, an annoying, honestly, annoying show. Before you said eighteen, how do you have you time said, for that? I mean, before I you said on up, Netflix, I ended up watching three episodes I, and reading the Vulture recaps of the rest because I was mad out of my mind about how infuriating it was. But okay. If you hadn't said on Netflix, I would have wondered if it was a Yellowstone prequel. It is. Yeah, uh, yeah, but that's nineteen twenty three and eighteen ninety. Yeah, I think it's like 1893 or something. No, there's yeah, there's a lot of Yellowstone people. Yeah, not this one though. This is from I'm the people who made Dark. That, that so Harrison I... Ford one, cowboy hat. Signed Harrison Ford okay. cowboy hat. That's all it takes. Uh, all right, the menu in theaters now. Uh, check it out. It'll be yeah. on streaming. It's making soon. money. Go see in theaters. Support. Yeah. Movies in theaters, actually. <laughs> Talk more about that. Katie tried to segue. Yeah. Katie tried to segue. Dave. <laughs> Yeah, no segue. Do that. Wow, on. what Move a tattletale. Let's listen to something from the wall really quick. Hey, out there on your own, sitting naked by the phone, would you touch me? Hey, you, with your ear against the wall, waiting for someone to call out, would you touch me? Hey, you. 
As listeners of the show may be aware, last Wednesday, I believe, thanks the day before Thanksgiving, Netflix released in 600 very particular theaters across the country uh, the sequel to Knives Out, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, which is a title that makes no sense. It should at least be a Ben Which we're not about to review or spoil before anyone skips ahead. We'll get there. We're not even going to talk about the quality of this very, very funded good movie um, until (laughs) until December. And the reason the reason for that is because Netflix then, as was their, you know, insidious plan all along, yanked the movie out of theaters <laughs> after one week uh, and then put it in the Disney vault until uh, Christmas. <laughs> That's a good when, comparison. Yeah, when it's going to be uh, on Netflix. And there are rumors, scuttlebutt, that they may also put it back into some theaters, uh, which would be a very, it would seem, fiscally responsible Why? thing to do, considering that it was a huge huge hit even by the standard like you know which is not even by the standards by especially impressive for a four-walled movie a movie that effectively the distributor paid for uh you know the screenings to have they don't have any deals in place with the large movie chains that allow for this sort of thing um they did give the movie chains a larger percentage of the gross than studios usually do i think they only took 30 or 40 depending on the venue and to be clear, it played in theaters that it had, a Netflix movie had never played in, right? Like an AMC. Oh, sure. Yeah. If a, Netflix, if a Netflix movie is playing in. Usually six, these movies are playing in IPix or whatever yes, nonsense. Yeah. Is, um, yeah. If it's playing in 600, 600 theaters across the country, it's playing in a lot of theaters that have never played a Netflix movie. Yeah. Before. I mean, no Netflix, no Netflix movie has ever made like millions, plural, uh, yeah, not, in a release, right? No, maybe. That, that we know. That's probably not true. I think that the, the Roma days, they probably got in the 2 million arena, but. Uh, I mean, okay. The, All right. Es- estimates are that Knives Out made anywhere between thirteen and sixteen million dollars over the five-day holiday weekend, which uh, on six hundred screens, which alone was enough for third at the box office. Had it played on, I don't know, two thousand screens, a number closer to the number of screens that say Strange World debuted at, it probably would have cleared thirty million dollars. That much of a problem, um, and you know, maybe even threatened Wakanda Forever on top of the box office. Uh, Something Judging, more in line with what the original Knives Out did. Yeah, I mean, so a little bit less or than bigger. that, but yeah. Um, I think the original Knives Out grossed uh, its opening weekend. Actually, that's hard to say, but uh, we'll get there. Anyway, it seemed to be from where I, like, the, the buzz of this movie was very strong, um, and my normie friends, you know, the, the people who are not in the film industry, uh, were all texting me asking if they could watch Glass Onion at Home, because uh, people who are not, you know, <laughs> Tapped into what's happening. You don't like. Well, it's also fucking, like extremely hard to know when well, you can is, watch something. This is what exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, like it's hard in yeah. all cases. But people who don't get like deadline alerts or whatever um, are usually completely at sea and understanding where they can find a movie, which is a big part of Hollywood's problem right now. Because every single Netflix movie, um, even just within this one platform, has a different release strategy. Um, you know, which uh, for the most part, and this is a completely novel one. And I do appreciate the the value of having a la carte um, distribution strategies to finding the best way to roll out each individual movie. But it does, first of all, that's not something they take advantage of very well or very often. Um, and two, it, it does cause a lot of confusion. But I had a lot of friends texting to say, you know, can I see Glass Onion at home? And I think when I told them, no, I don't know how many of these people went out to the theater, but a lot of people certainly did. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of those six movie theaters were full. Um, when theaters playing the Fablemans, sadly, were or you know another strong movie that was playing over Strange World, 
Yeah, we're, we're less so. Um, and now, you know, I think a lot of people who were not clued into the strategy and thought, you know, once they learned maybe that it wasn't on Netflix yet, thought that it must be coming on Netflix next week. And that they would have or that it would be it. in theaters next week. Sure, that as well. Um, and that they wouldn't have to rush out. They would still be sort of fresh. Uh, now they are going to, you know, look up showtimes and find that they aren't going to have any, uh, maybe ever, but uh, at least until Christmas. Um, and it feels uh, it's a strange, it's a strange Here's, choice. But the question is, you know, the question you posed to us in email was, is this successful? Well, it's really, I mean, the question hidden in that question is by whose metric, because you know, by Netflix's metric. By, <laughs> Let's I mean, talk about Netflix's metric. It's hard to say because the, under, the reports out of Netflix are that Ted Sarandos, you know, the poncho of Netflix, is sort of anti any sort of theatrical strategy. Hey, Katie, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I'm just curious. <laughs> Run two conversations here at the same time. <laughs> made, made homemade granola, just being clear. Although I do, I want to keep talking about Glass Onion. I'm not falling in this bit. What, is Ted, <laughs> what did Ted Sarandos uh, say, David? He, I mean, the, this is he's not on the record, but... Variety was saying that he is anti having a more robust theatrical platform. He's all in on Netflix subscribers watching shit on Netflix, whereas uh, some of the more film focused underlings that he has uh, are gung ho about having you know a theatrical option and trying to make this happen. And when you see, you know, Netflix is not a, um, a company that is having the greatest success this year, even if they've rebounded from their doldrums. But and here they have this unqualified right. hit. And it's generating not not only is it generating money, but it's also generating you know fantastic word of mouth that it's going to guarantee that even if Glass Onion does go back into theaters on Christmas, it's going to rocket up the Netflix charts and be number one on the Netflix charts over Christmas and the week beyond. Exactly. You know. So, like this in this particular case, they're not making like money because the the Netflix <clears throat> economic failure right now is about subscribers, it's about growth, about like getting people to actually go to Netflix and give a shit about what's on it, uh, which they're struggling with. They have created scarcity here, and now they have something that when it hits Netflix, everyone is going to be going crazy but to go to say see that it. This they... is the Batman, but in a more condensed way, where like the Batman got the double dip. It got to be in theaters for a few weeks, and then when it hit HBO Max, it was also huge by many metrics. And now they will do the exact same thing. I saw so many people tweeting this weekend, like, oh, they're leaving all this money on the table. They're leaving chunk change on the table when it comes to theatrical expensive like the amount of money as you said they're giving so much money to the theaters to even do it this is an advertising campaign put it out there let people feel like they missed it all when it comes to netflix it's gonna be huge uh, yes uh uh, but you know what i hear from that is why not like it's it's amazing you know it's like they're inventing it's like the the tech bros who invent the fucking bus every other week it's like hey why not put a movie (laughs) in theaters in an exclusive and create you know scarcity have exclusivity and then because after Amazon a little failed bit of a wait, they not can put it in theaters. No, but they're like, you know, stumbling back all the way around the circle to the uh, glory days of the 90 day, 30 day, whatever day you want to have theatrical window. Um, and are going to realize that that's a model that makes sense for them. And the best way of getting their other theatrical movies, that same kind of exposure, their other like cream of the crop movies, your pale blue eyes, which not very good, but whatever. Um, your, uh, your Romas, your power of the dogs. You know, these are movies that, you know, if they had risked the exposure to box office numbers, not that Netflix actually reported and they, they specifically instructed the theaters not to report or celebrate their grosses with press releases and whatnot. Probably because they have don't have numbers to celebrate. Is there a movie that's like Glass Onion that Netflix has ever put out? No. They've never Wait. had a movie that would be a hit. 
Well, we don't know that. There's no way of knowing that. We do. The Adam Sandler movie Hustle yeah. would have been a hit. Uh, Ubi yeah. Halloween, $200 million. Could have been, it you probably would have been a hit. No, I would not have. <laughs> what? I mean, you can die. The Hotel Transylvania like, movies keep making money. Like the social media uh, numbers. A different wavelength. I feel like us talking about this and everybody talking about this this early week uh, is worth more than $200 million, which I think is the point that Patches is, is exactly. making. Exactly. This because if you're playing a subscriber game, two hundred million dollars is is nothing. Like right. Disney Plus is losing one point five billion and still just trying to get more. But subscribers. isn't the whole thing that we've learned this year that this is that the subscriber game is not real and that no one's ever going to win it, and yeah. eventually you have to just make money. By I think patches. I think one thing I disagree product. with about that logic patches is like what Katie's saying is exactly right. Like you know, there's fake money and there's real money, and like the shell game of subscribers that dip in and out. Um, because there's like one movie they want to watch and they cancel the subscription when you jack up the prices, uh, is not the same as finding a, a consistent stream of income that Netflix is leaving on the table with these these movies. And like this, uh, but it's not consistent if the movies aren't good. Well, like if it's unless a great you could do a glass onion. Um, well, uh, yeah, they've had a great incentive to make better movies the whole time. I don't think. I don't think they're going out there being like, oh, well, actually, maybe in the early times, they're just but like, the we need more content. protects those movies from their own failure and from, the, like, it's, it's, a, it's a barrier, the quality of them and a disincentive to making good movies because they can put out, and I have to review every week another movie that goes straight to Netflix at any sort of festival play. Uh, Knives Out is not in that category. Um, directed by, you know, fucking uh, Francis Lawrence or like another, like, somewhat major studio director. And they are too embarrassing to release in theaters. And, you know, I think that, like, that they get away with that because there's no real need for quality control because you can tap into a certain demographic and get the view hours and whatnot. But I do think that, you know, one of the reasons theatrical worked for as long as it did is that it forms a kind of loop where you're, you're reinforcing the quality of the movies or, or supporting the audience or supporting the quality of the movies and everybody gets richer. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, like... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it was this a success? Maybe. I mean, I'd be curious to see. They'll, they'll know in here. December. They don't know if it's. No one knows if it's. Yeah, well, really. But uh, I mean, I should be clear too in making this argument that I'm not making an argument against theatrical or something. I'm more devil's advocating. Like, I saw a lot of tweets this weekend. They're like, they're leaving all this money on the table. Why are they doing this when so many people want to see this in movie theaters? Well, number one, everyone who wanted to see it in movie theaters probably saw it this weekend. Um, oh, I don't think that's fair. I definitely don't think that's true, especially because those 600 theaters were specifically picked because they were the highest performing theaters in the country. That leaves sure, out... Sure, exactly. That, that leaves it's all out, metrics. It's all strategy. Yeah, but the people, the audience for Knives Out doesn't just live in the immediate vicinity but they of those 600 don't, theaters. They don't want people to see it in theaters. They want well, people to see it on Netflix. That's part of it i mean and like, that is the end what, of the what conversation dave said, what dave <laughs> said about about how this conversation itself is you know kind of not that anyone's listening to this podcast but in theory uh is whoa, the whoa, kind whoa, of thing whoa. that that netflix <laughs> is money can't buy um but yeah you know it's it's yeah i mean like what success means it, it's such a variable concept these days so depending on who is asking um but i, do I just think like the it, idea that Oh, sorry, go ahead, finish. No, I was just going to say, like, the idea that there's clearly an appetite to go to theaters and see movies like this, a movie that thrives in theaters. This movie will, and I, and with, I say this with great sorrow to anyone who did not, uh, you know, race have to see it this weekend, could not, does not live in an area where it was playing. 
This movie is not going to be a fraction as much fun at home. This is an audience movie to the bone. Uh, it is great to see in a crowd that's laughing its ass well, off. Well, this is the deal Ryan and, Johnson made. Yeah. Yeah. Like, does anyone, I mean, who is to blame here? I saw so many people being well, like, Netflix, shame on you. Netflix, Ryan Johnson made the deal. Well, Ryan sure, Johnson he has been doing this. this. He's been doing this the whole time. Like, yeah. Looper was like an experiment for like right. a Chinese release Play deal. The the man uh, yeah, the he's, he's, he, he makes quality movies and then leaves it up to whoever's releasing them to figure out how to release them, which at least it's I think a good is. Probably idea. And that's brain. the, that's the artistic, that's the artistic, uh, like basis we're looking for with netflix movies so uh, it, i it doesn't surprise me yeah, that the, end of the, the business day, is just fucking it up it's a streaming service they want people to subscribe to the streaming service well they found right? they like, found a what? exceptional way to advertise their streaming movies and it turns out it's putting <laughs> yeah, it in the theaters the lesson of 2022 has been that the streaming service thing is a shell game and that you are never going to be able to consistently make good stuff at the rate that they have been and actually make money. And Netflix has been was the first example of that Disney Plus has come next. So the idea that anything is being used to like support the Netflix subscriber base, I just look at that and be like, that's all just money that in five years doesn't exist. And it feels stupid compared to the 90 years of evidence we have of people buying tickets to good movies. And like people who we talked to, who David talked to, who I did, who were like, I want something to see in the theaters and I can't figure out what to see. And also half of it's going to streaming automatically. Yeah, there's anyway. a I mean, maybe we can talk about this with Fablemans. Uh, yeah, I, well, I, the I, biggest my biggest hope is that I hope Glass Onion gets put out on Blu-ray so that when Netflix well, implodes, that the all the only movies are currently buried the only in the way, ground. The only <laughs> way that would happen is if Criterion releases it, and maybe that's possible. There is a prominently featured Janice Films mug in the film that is a very important prop. <laughs> so maybe you know, Stranger Things have happened. Yeah, Stranger Things on Netflix. Mm. Yeah. It's it's gonna be interesting because like uh, I don't think I would watch all of Bardo if I wasn't in a theater and had mm -hmm. to watch all of Bardo. No one will ever watch all of Bardo on Netflix. So it will be also uh, also interesting to see like David alluded to if they try to give another crack at it in December just because see what you could squeeze out of the 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 lemon while uh, uh lemon's a bad example because that means a shitty the car. What you could thank you thank you what you could squeeze out of the onion. Uh, while Avatar is trying to wreak havoc on everything, Top Gun uh, maybe... Maverick coming back to theaters in December. Before yeah, I think Avatar, it, I think it. I think it would be an interesting counter programming because David's right that you should see it in theaters. I had the only time there was a screening that still had tickets left. By the time I was like, "Oh shit," uh, was the day of Thanksgiving at ten thirty p.m. I went to go wow. see Glass Onion, and I did not regret it. It was fine. Just took an afternoon nap. It's perfect. They even does not have children. Fuck you. Moving on. <laughs> to wrap up today's podcast we're going to talk about a movie that is struggling i think at the box office might no, not matter it's doing okay okay it's doing okay i don't mean to damn it in that way i think when we see a steven spielberg movie come out we we think that the spielberg brand is so strong that it will be a hit no matter yeah. what of all um, the movies that we have talked about on this podcast uh this one has earned 
less in theaters so far than the rest of them. Yeah, um, I mean, Spielberg has not been having the best time. West Side Story was not a hit. Um, and The Fablemans, which we're going to talk about a little about tonight, uh, is not a hit. I don't think if you greenlight this movie that is very autobiographical, <laughs> it's funny. I feel like there's so many kind of autobiographical movies that have been made, especially over the last few years, um, where the filmmakers are like, well, yes, of course, it is partially based on my life, but I'm making a lot up here. Whereas Spielberg's like, absolutely my life. I'm just changing some names. Tony Kushner took a lot of notes. I've been basically in therapy with him for the last few years, and he made a screenplay out of my life. Um, Spielberg and, made, Spielberg and James Gray are, have both been like, yeah, 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 that was just my dad. Right. Like, no shits. Yeah, the, this is a movie about what Spielberg's life. What else do those have in common? What do they have? We'll get there. We'll get there. Look, David, your turn's coming, all right, Mr. I don't <laughs> like Santa movies. Uh, <laughs> okay, Kanye, uh, step down. Um... <laughs> He was going to be our guest this yeah, so, episode, but I uh, yeah. actually when I finished watching the failings, I'm like, we got to show this. Movie you called Kanye. Yeah. He needs to see this. Um, yeah. So we're talking about the failings. We're talking about Steven Spielberg. And this is a movie I was listening to an amazing conversation he, he had with Paul Thomas Anderson on the DGA podcast. Not to free promotion. Oh, I should listen to that. Oh, yeah. So good. Uh, one of my faves, especially during the Oscar season when all the movies are coming out and all the directors are ready to to talk uh it's good yeah so they talked for like 30 minutes and i think this is a movie he wanted to make for a long time or thought he should but then he kind of waited for his parents to to pass and uh he was trapped in his house during the pandemic and got on the phone with tony kushner and it was finally time to make the movie about life and reflecting on his childhood on his relationship with his parents something that comes up with almost every spielberg movie you know daddy issues uh, the mom characters like these are themes that have been present since the 70s with spielberg's work and now we have a movie that is putting it you know in the spotlight this is directly about all of this baggage that he's carried with him the whole time and i'm not sure it's exactly what i expected kind of having watched this movie my entire life and, and going into the Fablemans. My, my, the way I want to start this conversation, though, is going back to Toronto Film Festival, where this movie premiered. I'm pretty sure it's the first movie that Spielberg has ever made that premiered at TIFF. He's not a festival guy. A lot of his movies don't premiere well, there. Uh, he's never premiered at any be. festival. Is the, I think part of right. The, he can just put a movie there. out. Uh, he can do the post, and it can come out last minute in the end of December. It's just like, hey, Spielberg's movie's here. Uh, let's just show it. Um, so, but this movie played TIFF, and I feel like we had early conversations before I had seen it. I just saw it this week. Um, from you guys reporting from TIFF that this might be like minor Spielberg. It felt like the reactions were kind of uh, applauding, like everyone's kind of cool with it, but maybe it's not his finest work. It's He got it out of his system. But I gotta tell you, I was blown away by the Fablemans. I loved it. So I really want to hear if people actually think that this is minor Spielberg, how it's sat with you over the months, and like where we are with the Fablemans. I think this is major. I was totally taken by. I, I kind of expected it to be this kind of rote nostalgic reflection on childhood, a power of cinema kind of thing. I thought it'd be Belfast. I just don't really think so that... far beyond that for me. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's it, it was Belfast as if you know Spielberg, whatever. But I I do take issue a little bit with the binary that you put up here because I think you know like it or not, love it or hate it. 
I think Fableman's categorically can't really be sorted as minor Spielberg, given how uh, you know personal and and you know much of a skeleton key it is for uh, the movies that he's made and the very public life that he's lived. Um, so I don't know, you know, lo- yeah, I just don't, I just don't know if that's a helpful distinction. Um, but well, where 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 do you where do you fall with the Fableman now that you've sat with it for a while? Is this uh, feel major to you? Has yeah, it, I mean, it's the kind of it's the kind of movie in your esteem, or you know, listen, I I saw it, I saw it at the premiere. I was, it was, you know, what a night that was. It premiered on the same night as Glass Onion, back to back. Um, it was a big scene, uh, and everyone was sort of expecting which one of the first uh, Knives Out or Glass Onion, whatever oh. the fuck it's called, and everyone was sort of expecting the Spielberg urtext, you know, like the the um the the what sort of looking for like the the summary of his the skeleton life. key just yeah whatever it. but like i mean it did become that but i think this is an an ungainly in some ways and very unexpected movie um it does hit a lot of the beats you might expect just from its premise as a movie about steven spielberg really candidly looking back at formative years and falling in love with cinema and and his relationship to the movies and how that dovetails with his relationship with his family um but it is uh, it is not the kind of saccharine crowd pleaser that it's not the kind of saccharine movie that I think people wrongly expect from Spielberg. And it's not the kind of crowd pleaser that people have come to expect from Spielberg. I mean, I think it it is definitely mm-hmm. more in the vein of the movies that he's made in the latter part of his career. And certainly the ones with Tony Kushner, who wrote the script for this um, or co-wrote the script for this. I think Spielberg gets a credit in the writing. Yes, he yeah. does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it's a lot, it's very modeled and nuanced and strange. And I think it threw me for a loop a little bit the first time I watched it because they're, it's very episodic. And a lot of those episodes, I think they all end on really spectacular moments of catharsis or joy, or um, there's like a long subplot about bullying in the third act that typical with some of the, the threads in the movie kind of rubbed me the wrong way as it was happening and then ends so spectacularly that mm. all is sort of forgiven. And it ends with the best it. scene in the, in the movie. I don't think it's, I mean, it's a very, very good scene. I think there's a scene with, uh, with Paul Dano after that. And also a scene with mm. Michelle Williams and her son in the closet oh, many earlier. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and so I wasn't really sure what to make of it. Um, I had a lot of stressful, harried late night fun sort of parsing through my thoughts the night that it premiered, but it's a movie that has, sort of grown in my memory as the parts that I loved about it sort of took root and the things that I think I may not have been expecting or knew what to make of at the time faded away. I've been really eager to watch it again. Um, But I was also deeply, deeply moved by the central idea of the way that sort of movies became a lens or like a not a lens to the world but really like a like a filter like a film a layer of film between Spielberg and the rest of the world um in a way that sometimes obscured his understanding of what was happening and sometimes clarified it and sort of allowed him to uh relate to the world became the the sort of the axis by which he could relate yeah. to the world and I think that's handled really beautifully we should, and we should yeah in, in case people haven't, I mean, seen the movie again, it's it's hasn't opened terribly wide in, in the country, and I'm not sure it ever will. Apparently, it's going to come to streaming in December or like come to VOD or whatever. But no, uh, that's I, that's what like Universal's been doing with a bunch of their movies. I'm okay, sure it will well, open wide. The point is, maybe not a lot of people have seen the Fablemans yet. But just to set it up, I think what's what's startling about it 
is yes, this movie opens with the the moment when Spielberg went to his first movie, Sammy Fableman, I should say, went to his first movie in Seoul, <laughs> uh, the greatest show on earth. A movie I have never. Have you guys seen the greatest show on earth? It's like I Notorious is one of the best picture winners. Everybody hates. I need to watch it because the scene that they actually show in the Fablemans is pretty spectacular. You can understand why a little kid uh, who is probably in a movie that is way too old for him uh, would be completely grabbed by this train wreck moment and all these action set pieces. Um, but yeah, he sees it with his parents and his parents are talking about it in two different ways. His dad is a very scientific man. He's He works with computers. Um, he's fixing television on the side and uh, he's explaining like, 24 frames per second and how these movies work. And then his mom is like art and the feelings, um, two totally different type of people that have fused into Spielberg. Very uh, uh, Maliki in, in, a, in a way, the way you describe it, it's very free of life. Like, you know, mother, father, mother and father inside me. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that in this, in this movie and why it's so successful. It, it feels very ethereal to at times. I mean, it's more of that Kushner drama than anything in, in tree of life, but um, what astounds me about this movie is how it's floating through time and how there's no villain, um, how everyone feels really dimensional. And to your point, it's a lot of, and, and Spielberg eventually gets there in the filmmaking where Sammy Fableman is like almost envisioning himself filming things to figure them out. There's a scene where his parents are having their huge argument and he's imagining himself making the movie of it. One of the moments in the movie. That's that maybe I also, like, that might also I, be the best scene. I was completely shattered by that. Like this is, you know. A bunch of us went to film school here. Uh, we all went, we were on an art path in our lives. And uh, I certainly have these moments where I'm just like, what is the movie version of this? Or like, now I'm like, what is the story that I want to tell out of this thing that I'm hearing? I, I have these moments and I've never really seen it in a movie depicted this way. And, and I thought that really broke me. Um, but early on in the movie, Sammy Fableman is, is understanding the world through art. It's like, he's not, enthused by movies it's the only way he can communicate it's the only way he can understand or process it's so much more than feelings. the power of film right it's like like this is it's, his it's dna him, it's him being so overwhelmed by that scene the greatest show on earth that the only way he can figure out to work through it is to repeat God. it over and over again. and it is like savant behavior right because yeah, he, he cannot even comprehend how he makes Fableman reminds me so much of Haley joel osmond and ai like the actor i thought about ai a lot yeah. during this mm -hmm. movie it's uh, like, it's kind of spooky the Kamins the Janusz Kowitzki, like the way that they're shooting this movie, just like all those scenes sitting down with the mother, it, it feels a lot like AI, and I did not expect that to be the comparison point for me. Um, but it has this, yeah, this like sitting down and being like, this is what being a child is. Here's what understanding the world is all about. And um, yeah, I was kind of blown away that it's nothing like, I don't know what I think Empire of the, of the, the Light or whatever that fucking movie Empire that's coming out soon is. That's uh, also Empire of Light uh, the is, is, uh, is I wouldn't go down we'll that rabbit hole. Empire of Light. We will get there. We will definitely it's just, get there. It's just nothing like that's my, what you think it is. We'll get there on the podcast too. Uh, Katie, Dave, what did you, what did you make of the Failments? Was this exactly what you expected? Is this a Nepo baby of a movie or is it uh <laughs> no, Did it start never, We're never baby. saying that sentence, but Again. Another Nepo baby. Um, I, yeah, I really liked it. Uh, it hit slightly different for me as somebody whose parents got divorced like two years ago. Uh, sort of watching it work around that, and also somebody who's you know been a fan of Steven Spielberg since E.T., Jurassic Park. You know, pick your poison. Watching VHSs at home. Um, 
I was struck by when he finally gets around to making this movie, which he's already always sort of danced around, I think, since like the late 90s. Uh, he finally has the perspective to be uh, kind to all of his characters. I think, Patch, as you said, there wasn't really a villain or an antagonist. Uh, I just really like the three-dimensional space uh, that all these characters live in and where each of them is sort of given a chance to build the relationship they're looking for. Whether or not that works out well for them in the end, uh, I think is sort of out of their hands and in the hands of the overall narrative. But I just really enjoyed every episode, um, and it did a great job of sort of becoming something at the end that felt like a full movie that had some things to say that Patches and David have been outlining. Uh, but also just like in the moment, uh, it was like every sort of segment built to the uh, backwards down the hill segment from Licorice Pizza. It's like, it's like, oh, it's going to it's going to come to a head. It's going to come to a head. And then it comes to a head and we get to see sort of how that works out. Uh, there's some great stuff with him coming to terms with who his mom is when he's a teenager. Uh, there's some great stuff with the bullying at school. And all of those things, uh, we literally have to spend time with him making sense of it and getting control over it by watching him edit 8mm, 16mm film uh, the old-fashioned way, uh, which also brought back some sense yeah, memories from college. Did you guys college. ever do that? Did you do, th yeah. did you do that? Yeah, a little bit. Guys, not I, found, not my choice. Uh, I found on VHS tape my 2004 Sight and Sound uh, project, the student movie that I made that I remember we talked about at some point years ago about being lost it's at my parents house i still I made have it all my, all i made it on 16 real it, wow yeah it was made on 16 but i only ever got a vhs copy of it because it was 2004 so maybe someday i will find a way to get it on youtube i'm sure it is bad cutting on a yeah. steam deck was an amazing bloodletting yeah, well, the, the shot where he's taping the, the, yeah, the reels to the, the edge of the desk that was what i really remember the one thing i don't yeah, understand but, is how he cues records up to his movies and like as sound don't think about Internet. it patches okay i want to i mean he did it obviously um, <laughs> i mean maybe he's pressing records but we didn't this movie's so full with every little like little piece having a contribution to the whole i'm not sure if we need to see the it pressing feels his very thing. the movie has this quality to it and i don't know exactly how it achieves it maybe you guys have a feeling on this but it just feels so memoir. It feels like, oh, you couldn't make this up. The scene where his mom played by Michelle Williams um, early on in the film, there's a tornado in New Jersey. And she's like, fuck it. Let's go. Let's go chase the tornado, kids. She's endangering her children. Um, and at the time, you're like, all oh, the kids are amped. Get in the car and we're going to chase the tornado. They hand the baby off to Paul Dano, the dad. Um, and it just feels like something like, oh, we can't, you can't make this up. This feels like an as told but to What's interesting about that scene is And I don't just, know what the quality about it feels so specific. What's interesting about that scene is not just that it happened, but the way that he shoots it is in the like the signature Spielbergian vernacular. Uh, it feels like it could be a scene from the first 35 minutes of War of the Worlds. I mean, it, it is it's baked, you know, with like through the lens of who the filmmaker he would become as an adult. And I think all the, the that we see in the movie from the very first scene, even in, in you know everything save for the actual footage from the greatest show on earth uh, is is so filtered in a way not dissimilar from like something like After Sun, like in in reverse time as well, uh, and like the, this, this sort of uh, 
reverse dolly shot of like of a movie of moving backwards in times and forward in time at the same time and it does give everything this, this intractably personal feeling uh that it isn't just like a womb to tomb biopic that you would get you know it's like this happened and this happened and this happened i mean it's all squarely about how it's presented to us and not just the events of you know my family grew up i grew up in new jersey we're the only jews in town and then we moved to arizona and then we moved to california and i was bullied for being a jew and then you know i at the end uh, <laughs> you know it's uh yeah i i feel like i out of tiff heard that this movie was spielberg's melodrama but this is not like a Douglas Sirk movie or something. This is no. You know, that's you a almost weird... expect you almost expect like Paul Dano's dad character to be like, "No son of mine is gonna make movies." You gotta be well, a it's like Judd Hirsch shows have to do the opposite yeah. thing, being like, <laughs> right. "Movies will tear you apart, kill yeah. you." I, so <laughs> Judd, you have no control. Judd Hirsch shows up in this movie and reiterates the themes Rips. in the clearest possible terms. You know, and and that dichotomy that Patrick was talking about earlier about the. You know, the father representing sort of the, the logical brain, the, the left brain, and the mother representing the right brain. He comes in, he talks about tearing them in two, and he's this, like, vaudevillian, old Hollywood clown character. Lion, and, putting his head in a lion. Yeah, I mean, the premiere, <laughs> the audience of the premiere gave, like, a uh, massive ovation um, during wow. the scene. And I have to say, like, I maybe I will come to feel very differently about this when I watch the movie again, as I look forward to and assume i'm gonna see it many times um but it, that whole sequence really didn't that worked i think less than anything else in the movie for me really uh Ooh. it's just i it's, love that bit. it's very it feels very hammy and over the top in a way that like it to a degree needs to be because it needs to spark something within young sammy fableman but it's to the point where i don't know i just it felt very sort of you know high on its own supply and uh you know why that scene works for works for me like the the proceeding scenes not not to get too spoilery about it because i don't think a lot of people have seen this movie yet but like the movie does a kushner thing i feel like it has a magical realism streak momentarily in the middle where um michelle williams character loses her mother and she's like kind of losing her mind she's she's untethered here and she's like hearing voices she's worried that a ghost is calling her and she's like is a dibic walking into my home or like there I've, I've had a premonition. This man should not be here. And it's Judd Hirsch. And he's just like spouting this just loud rhetoric. And it feels sort of mythic in a um, angels in America kind of heightened realism mm. way. It feels, and, th- and this is something I wanted to get to. I was uh, talking back and forth a little bit earlier today with Alec Scott's bias at the reveal. And uh, he was mentioning the, uh, the Kushner factor. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot that like, Tony Kushner has saved Spielberg in this late game era where so many directors, his colleagues too, Spielberg's contemporaries are just like flaming out at this age. When you've been making movies for this long, you don't get to make like good movies anymore. You kind of just, it's like Tim Burton. He's not making good movies. He hasn't made a good movie in 20 years. Like what happened to that guy? Tim Burton's a contemporary Spielberg, but okay. You don't think so? (laughs) No, Spielberg started later? like a decade before Tim. Yeah, Burton. but he was so young. I mean, I mean, you're Spielberg, thinking of Coppola and Lucas, started. and then Scorsese. Yeah, I guess so. But fine. even then, yeah, these elder statesmen and like not trucking as much. Uh, maybe like Ridley Scott or something. Anyway, I think Ridley, Ridley Scott is and, not trucking so much. Ridley Scott is making so many goddamn movies. I mean, he's making he's making a lot of stuff. I I don't disagree with that. Let's not get sidetracked here. Anyway, I I I feel like. 
Tony Kushner doesn't get enough appreciation in this era. I, I think we talked about this with West Side Story, but I'm like, that's as much a Kushner movie as a Spielberg movie. And Lincoln is much a, and that Lincoln might be one of my top five Spielberg movies. It's like as much a Kushner movie as anything. And, um, and I think that this is as much as it is the Spielberg urtext autobiographical film that he's been dying to make his entire career. It's as much a Tony Kushner play as, as anything. And I, unlock something and my, my hottest take and i made david bristle on on twitter was that like if you look at something like schindler's list schindler's list is an accomplishment it is an experience it is full force filmmaking by spielberg he wanted to make this movie about the holocaust it is not dramatically coherent it is actually not a very good movie when did you watch is... rewatch schindler's list I, I a few weeks ago <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I haven't watched it since I was in like This is the magic school. of a movie club that has been going since the pandemic. I'm watching Schindler's List for some reason. Um but yeah, like this is a movie where I, I think he could have used a dramatist and now he has one and he could finally make the movie that requires the most dramatic uh, like carrying the weight of it all and, and and organizing it in such a way. And I think that's where Fablemans gets really uh, is a, really a success story because Kushner steps in and kind of makes it a great movie. Um, and, that, and then that Hirsch scene is exactly that. Playwriting. Hmm. Katie, what were movie. your overalls? I think we, talk, we talked around you a little bit. Okay, here's the thing I wanted to say. I, I keep thinking of Lincoln with mm -hmm. The Fablemans. I know we talked about how it feels now, like a lot of now, now, movie. Now, 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 So now, Lincoln is now. a movie that I <laughs> saw at the New York Film Festival premiere and was like, huh, this is like a lot of scenes and like there's good stuff in here, but I, I like don't scenes. feel it. And then I kind of thought on it and saw it again, and it just grew and grew and grew for me and the power of all that accumulation. And I feel like the Fablemans works in a similar way of just like, it's, I mean, Lincoln even has more of a structure whether they're trying to pass that amendment. The Fablemans is just like, he's growing up. Um, but it was really that scene. <laughs> Time's going that way. <laughs> it was that scene um, by the lockers with the bully that, you know, you've probably mm -hmm. heard about it if you've heard talk about this movie that the the entire movie clicked into place for me and I was like, oh shit, that's what this has been. And like it's about the power of cinema, but it's about more than that and about like the confusing, isolating aspects of like holding the power of cinema in your hands, which is such a fascinating thing for Spielberg, in particular, someone who has made like some of the most mainstream beloved movies. Like he's not an arty guy who's like isolated himself from people with his art. But it's been that experience for him all the same, which is totally fascinating. Um, I, I also have been wanting to see it again. Um, it, but yeah, I love I Lincoln and I think I'm going to love see it Fablemans the same way. I think what's interesting about it is the sort of implicit awareness without ever burgeoning in, or, or ever bridging into sort of uh, egotism or, or arrogance of the importance that Spielberg's personal life has had on the American imagination by virtue of what you know, he's been able to make, you know, out of the ingredients of his personal life. I mean, like, I the first thing I say in my review of the movie is that I don't know if any other divorce in the 20th century had <laughs> as profound an impact on all of our lives, uh, you know, on the lives of the American imagination, you know, as as the one between his parents did. And, you know, so much is made when people talk about his movies about you know broken families and sad dads and uh, daddy issues and divorce and whatnot. But I think that you know, he gets this movie is built around a sort of implicit sense that this divorce is not just important for or that it's worth a two and a half hour movie 
that that this kid's childhood, despite a lack of overtly um, eventful things, you know, by the standards of what happens in most two and a half hour movies that premiere the you know nine p.m. Saturday night slot at Toronto International Film Festival, um, that it, it somehow is still important, but it never takes that importance for granted or um or well like, it doesn't rub your face in it they're right. not like and then i had reese's pieces right, and you know those right. are going to show up later but i think it's ready to clear one there is it, oh it could have been uh, that movie but there is so much going on in the movie that i think it, it it's able to get by but that but i mean the character is so nuanced in this experience that, like even if you don't you know this hypothetical viewer watches this movie in 400 years and you know, doesn't know who Steven Spielberg went on to become and that, you know, they just the savant like filmmaker character. Um, I think he's able to he's able to show that he had a natural aptitude for film that had a strong effect on his parents that and and chart where that effect landed in the spectrum of pride versus something more and and or or not even pride even when it comes to his father's character, um, how it sort of uh, clashed with his ability to articulate love and, and express paternal love and how it became sort of a barrier to him doing that and like wasn't uh playing by the the terms that he understood um in a way that i think is common generationally with men of that age um but uh, yeah i think all of that is really deftly handled uh in a way that you know it is this movie could have been i don't think it ever would have been but in theory it could have been a shrine to you know yeah, yes. a masturbatory shrine to Steven Spielberg, and he's earned it if anyone has. But uh, it is it is not that. Um, it is able to not be self deprecating um, in a way that would have felt inauthentic. But I think uses the self evident, you know, obviousness of Spielberg's talent in meaningful ways. Yeah, and I, for me too, I felt the such a connection to his mom in this mm-hmm. movie as someone who has to like live alongside brilliant people, but maybe are, are, is not going to get there yourself. She wants to be an artist. She loves to dance and she plays the piano and maybe it wasn't her, her life, but I think there's a real tragedy in, in, in where her path goes not to spoil too much, but well, they get divorced and the reasons why are no, no one disagrees that they should get divorced. Like, She's being pulled in a different direction in her life. There, there's a poison seeping through their entire family. They can't break away, and, and she just needs to be on a different path, and that's so hard for the whole family to understand and for her to have failure in her life on, on some level. Like, she is not a savant. She is not going to be Steven Spielberg-level creative, and she's, she takes such pride in, in him, but I, I, I related so much to her character the way that they play and that Michelle Williams plays it that that she's just not going to get there, that she is underachieving, um, and she's found solace in maybe the wrong place. It's it's a real tragedy, even when the movie is very funny. It's probably the funniest thing that Spielberg has ever done. He's attempted a lot of bad comedy, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and and it's it is a crowd pleasing movie. movie he's I ever think, done. but it is a tragedy. I mean, I, I yeah, I felt such compassion for you... his mom. Because kind of structured more like a comedy. It's obviously also very sad. It's slick. It leaves yeah. you in the theater with a aha, which I think is a smart oh. way to end this movie. I mean, the last shot is a all timer. I tweeted can't at some point that. earlier this year that like <laughs> of the five great movies 
endings of a movie like one of them is in on a joke like some like it hot and the fablemans is the first movie i've seen in forever that tries to achieve that it's great it's pretty great it's a memorable ending memorable one the thing that should... spielberg says about it i will not say what the shot is but he operated the camera for of course that shot of course because yeah, he thought he his camera people were too were too good <laughs> yeah um uh Fablemans in theaters. It also needs your help. Uh, if you don't go check out the menu or maybe go check out the menu and Fablemans. But yeah, it's it's a good one. I don't I don't think it's low level Spielberg. I, no. I think you should check it out. Daddy's flown across the ocean. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. Next week, in theory, we're talking about women talking. Hey! You guys all have to talking, shut talking. up. And the men are here to, to do me. it. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say There's one man. tons about women and Mennonites, so it's next, my time to shine. Guys, who directed the Hellboy reboot? Any instances yeah. in next week's episode where we talk over Katie, it's all just a bit. We planned it in advance. Very funny. I actually, I'm, I'm going to live say this. I think Women Talking's release got delayed, so we might want to not talk about it. Okay. We yeah. will talk about Women Talking eventually. I think Women talk Talking is not coming out when we thought it was when we wrote this How down. can it be delayed? There's and only no, they, like they, four they, weeks left in the year. No, I think it's already been delayed. It's coming out at the end of the month and not uh, next Yeah, not, so next so. week, maybe we'll talk about scrolls through box office mojo i don't know we'll talk armageddon about time sure about should we talk about fablemans and armageddon time yeah we Maybe didn't we really can let revisit, us we can revisit avatar before, uh, oh yeah avatar top gun maverick will be back in theaters by the time still we haven't seen again. top gun maverick should i watch that what? i honest to god had a false memory of you having seen top gun maverick like i thought that was the whole point is that you only saw it yourself before you ate the goddamn shoe oh no. No, no, no. I haven't seen it. So for movie. all you know, the, the, the joke of the movie is they're like, we didn't do a Top Gun movie, but we made this guy eat a shoe. I even, and everybody I even spent in our like, Oscar bet, I'm, I'm pulling for it to win Best Picture. Still haven't seen it. You sh- patches. Patches. All right. Next week, we're you talking about Top Gun Maverick. We're talking about the absolute <laughs> oh, opposite shit. of women talking. We're talking about fucking Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, all right. Uh, I have a screener of that, too. I'm just watching it. Uh... In the meantime, tell the people who you are. Matt Patches, deputy editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightingintheworm.com. If you didn't listen to our review segment at the top of the show, we have many, many episodes. Oh, wait, I, this is the time where I can say after that segment, we we huddled and we we're like, should we have recommended our quarter quell episodes because they're so good or at least they're so diverse and eclectic and and showcasing our personalities yes we should have done that so go back and listen to our quarter quell episodes. uh every 25 we do a, a special and uh we're all there over many many years fighting in the uh i am david ehrlich uh you can find me on twitter uh at david ehrlich for the time being Find all of us together on iTunes, uh, which is owned by Apple, a perfect company that I'm sure has never done anything wrong. Um, and uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room. We'll read it live on the show. Uh, do it. 
And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You could email all of us at FITWR.podcast at gmail.com. You can also hear me on a little show on the Ringer Network called Trial by Content, where this past week we debated the best movie about making movies. And then halfway through the podcast, realized that we should probably let the listeners nominate things. So Tropic Thunder won uh, <laughs> over Cinema Paradiso and the Muppet movie. It was an interesting week. Uh, if you like talking about films, maybe hop over to that podcast and uh, help us out with, with our audience base. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Tropic Thunder holds up. Did you rewatch it for that? Does it hold up? I did not because it was a listener pick. Uh, I, I guess I could. We're thinking uh, that just everybody loves 2008 movies because Heath Ledger's Joker and The Dark Knight have both won trial by content polls. So it's like maybe 2008 is just a, a movie we don't, a uh, year we don't have to talk about it anymore. As summer, as someone who's been rewatching Mamma Mia lately, uh, summer 2008 is a strong time to be alive. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me on Little Gold Men at Vanity Fair, the podcast where this week we talked about the Spirit Awards and the Gotham Awards, where I hear David Ehrlich was there. I don't I was. Know if you were the one who was. Uh, hooting and hollering at Adam Sandler's speech, but that seemed like a. a good I was one of several people who was hooting and hollering at that very, very funny speech, which I assume is on YouTube a thousand times over yes. already and well worth watching. Yes. You can definitely watch it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich. You can find us all on Twitter at FITWR, where uh, I don't know. You can tell us if you saw Glass Onion in theaters, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was. In honor of Violent Night, what's your favorite movie with a Santa in it? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Bye.